When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, Vass here with this week's How To Academy podcast. In this episode, we celebrate the life of Stephen Hawking with his collaborator, the physicist Len Mlodinov, whose new book tells the story of their decades-long friendship. He spoke to the stand-up comedian and broadcaster, Robin Ince. Hello. Welcome to the How To Academy. And uh, this evening, uh, I'm Robin Ince, by the way. I normally do things like uh, the Infinite Monkey Cage, uh, where I interrupt Professor Brian Cox. Today, I'm going to be interrupting someone else with a deep knowledge of physics. And uh, we're going to be talking uh, about black holes, the beginning of time, and possibly bananas as well. Uh, In particular, we're going to be talking about this wonderful book, which is by someone who, when I last interviewed, uh, it's Leonard Blodnoff, who's written such great books. Uh, Ones I've read of his have included The Drunkard's Walk and Alaska and Feynman's Rainbow and uh, he also co-authored with um, Stephen Hawking The Grand Design and Briefer History of Time as well and uh, has now written this book which is all about his friendship his working relationship with Stephen Hawking and also about the science around Stephen Hawking's life and uh, the changes of uh, perception of the universe that he managed to put to an increasingly large audience sometimes things that are quite intricate that I think without people like him we wouldn't have known about and without people like Leonard as well who are so fantastic at translating incredible ideas which seem very counter-instinctual and making people like me able to understand them. Leonard, hello. It's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Robin. Great to see you again. Now, I wanted to start off by thinking, Feynman's Rainbow is a lovely book and and I'm a a great admirer of of Richard Feynman. Um, There's that lovely term where someone said that he was no ordinary genius, you know, and and, an ordinary genius is someone who's got a pretty good brain. And if they work incredibly, incredibly, incredibly hard, they win the Nobel Prize. No ordinary genius is an act of magic, as far as we can see, where people go, how did that brain do that? Human brains can't do that. So, I wondered, you know, with Stephen Hawking, where did you see in terms of his, his ability to grasp ideas? Did you find that he was within that very rare, no ordinary genius category? Well, no, he was, he was no ordinary genius either. I, I, I write my books about the non-ordinary geniuses. <laughs> you know, it, 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 there's so much to uh, unpack in that because Stephen wasn't just an ordinary person. He, he had this great disability that he had to struggle with, uh, which really affected the way he thought, the way he approached physics, the way he approached life. But if, if you try to separate that out, I would say what, what really separated him from other geniuses in physics 
is his adventure spirit, his ability to go places that other people didn't realize were interesting to go to or were afraid to go to, his, his courage in, in attacking problems where by attacking them, he knew he would be attacked. And yet, you know, having the fortitude to, to do that and to realize that it was important that people would eventually come around. So it's not necessarily the analytical mind that makes someone a genius. It's, it's the way they're, they're different and the way they approach the problem. And, and like Feynman, he was a maverick. Uh, he was a geometrical thinker. He thought in terms of pictures. And he didn't accept conventional wisdom. And I think that's what sets someone apart. Uh, you know, even if you're very smart and very able to understand uh, the theories of physics and to make progress, unless you have those traits, I think you're not going to create something new. Now, I found it, I, I was talking with uh, the cosmologist Carlos Frank, uh, and he was saying one of the minds that he finds fascinating is Sir Martin Rees, the astronomer royal. And it seems to be something you kind of, he says that he watches a mind where he seems to instinctually understand something and then have to do the working out. That for many physicists, many very, very good physicists, there is a level of working out and then revelation. And it seems that you hint about that in, in this book as well, about a certain instinctual nature of the way that Stephen Hawking thought. Well, it's, it's funny because as a physicist, you get you develop an intuition. And, and then people sometimes ask me, how could you have an intuition about black holes that you can't see or atoms that you can't see? And, and you develop that intuition over years of, of working on the theory and doing the mathematics, solving problems, and seeing how things behave. So it's kind of a, um, an abstract intuition you have in, in your head. And Stephen was very good at that. He, he had an instinctive, intuitive idea of what was important and, and where to go. And again, he didn't let other people uh, stop him from, from doing that. And I think his, his disability, in a way, helped him in that sense. Uh, I, we had several talks about his disability and, and how it affected his life, in which he told me that, that he thought it, it was an advantage. And in physics, what it forced him to do was to, was to create a geometric way of looking at the, at the universe. So problems in physics can be treated usually in two different ways. You can use what we call analysis or let's say algebra equations, or you can use geometry pictures uh, and relationships in, in space, even if it's an abstract space, not a real space. And so we're all very impressed with Stephen because he couldn't write equations. And I, I it's like, yet he could do physics. So to me, it's like watching a grandmaster of chess play 20 people blindfolded simultaneously. I'm going, how does that happen? It's a different brain. But what Stephen did was, instead of doing all those equations in his head, he developed a geometric approach, and he thought in terms of pictures. And his good friend and a friend of my Nobel Prize winner, Kip Thorne, who was one of Stephen's best friends for decades, told me that that was his superpower. One of his superpowers that his disability gave him was he had developed this geometric approach and by having that geometric approach, he thought differently, and he, had, he, had, he could picture things, and he could prove things using his geometric knowledge that other people didn't see. And that gave him a different intuition, which was a big advantage in doing his work. You say in the book, when, when you first kind of got to know him, there was a sense of pity at this physical frailty. And you said that pity evaporates over time. And I wondered if you could explain what it was in that process where that sense of pity disappeared? Well, what, okay, when you first meet someone or start working with someone and he can't move, you, you, you feel naturally you feel bad for the person. I remember uh, in the book there's a scene where I'm looking at a drop of sweat going down his forehead and his, his cheek, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, 
that would tickle me to death. And of course, I would just go like that and, and wipe it away. But he can't do that. He has to either take it or he has to wait for one of his carers to notice it and, and wipe it off. And I, and I felt bad for him. But then the reason I wrote the book was that's not the way it is with Stephen. Stephen was amazing in how he adapted and he was very inspirational in how he adapted and changed his, his whole mind to accept and to live with what his, his fate. So whereas for me, it would really bother me. Stephen rose above that. He, he took control of his feelings, of his brain, of, of his attitude. He, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with ancient Stoic philosophy, but he realized that happiness comes from within. And if you're not dependent on, if you can learn or train yourself to not be dependent on outside forces, on things and other people that you have to depend on, and you can find happiness and peace within yourself, then no one can take that away from you. And Stephen was such a um, model of that. His life was, was full of obstacles. Every, every, it wasn't just a drop of sweat. I mean, every minute, every hour, things were happening that would drive you know, an ordinary person crazy. And, you know, even when he, went at, when he went to bed at night, he didn't have peace to sleep. Uh, you know, he couldn't turn himself. He was unhooked from his, from his computer. He couldn't communicate. He couldn't turn. If you have an ache or something and you want to flip over, uh, you know, he can't do that. He has to wait for whenever the ordinary or the allotted times are where they would come and do that. So he had challenges all through the day and all through the night. And yet he, he met them and he was happy and, and he had a good attitude. He was optimistic. He had a sense of humor. So I soon, I soon learned that, you know, I don't, don't feel sorry for him. He's doing just, just great. And that's something I should learn from rather than take pity on. And you do have as well, there's, there's lots of stories in the books where you see both an impishness and also rebelliousness. I was just reading that story, for instance, you know, where he goes to a restaurant and there's no disabled toilets. And he thought, well, I have a method to, you know, if you can, if you can, can remember that story. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've all felt that way sometimes when we're, when, Someone is being unreasonable and we want to go, well, I'm going to show them. But I mean, Stephen was a great uh, advocate and a passionate advocate for people with disability. And uh, so when he went to that restaurant and he was told that there's, you know, and this was in the 70s, and so there's no disabled toilet. What were you thinking? Why would we have that? He asked his carer to wheel him around the back of the restaurant. She wasn't quite sure why he was saying that, but she did it. And when he got there, he insisted on doing his thing he had to he had to urinate and, and she took the plastic bottle out that, that where they did that and she pushed him into the bushes and took care of that and and then she was going to go away but he started insisting very loudly you know he could control the volume on his computer voice uh to, to empty it right there <laughs> and then uh, uh they make such a commotion that the chef comes out and sees what's happening and starts screaming at them and steven screams right back he just starts he says uh, very loudly repeatedly disabled toilet Disabled toilet, disabled toilet. And you know what? He came back a year later and they had a disabled toilet. So, uh, you know, he, he, he was passionate about disabled rights. And, and so he wasn't shy about fighting for it. And I think he had a, a good effect. That was one of the one of the greatest things I think. As many people will remember that you know the, the London Olympics, the the last time that um, England wasn't a laughing stock, and uh, there was, that, was you know, that? the opening of the of 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 the Olympics was great, and then the openings of the Paralympics with with Orbital on stage, with Ian McKellen on stage, with Stephen Hawking on stage. It was one of the most again, as you said, that this energy in everything that he did. 
it's to me a fascinating way that that can be translated when your body itself is not able to express that energy and yet that vitality seems to be again in the book so often such an important part of the story yeah i mean it's, it's really amazing how he continually did things that I thought he couldn't do, or sometimes I thought he shouldn't do. You know, one thing he did was he went on that so-called vomit comet. Have you have you heard of that? That's mm -hmm. the it's a uh, I think it's a 747 that they stripped everything out of it and it flies in a parabolic path. And when it's going when it's going up, you get extra G's on you. And when it's going down, you're in free fall. So you pay a few thousand dollars, you go somewhere in Florida, and they take you on this for a couple of minutes. You have, I don't know, you have like nine or 10 of these free fall uh, episodes. And I, I think it's pretty cool. And he wanted to do that. And his doctor said, hmm, that could be dangerous for you. Not just the, you know, the folding around, I don't know, but the, 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 the extra G's when you're going up. And who knows what that's going to do. And you're a very frail man. And he, he just, that went in one ear and out, out the other. And that's the way he was. He, you know, that's a, a big thing, but in little things, he, he would go with, he would love to take walks places. He would go hunting on the cam, which I thought was dangerous for him. I mean, I went with him once and, uh, you know, they had to carry him down the, his two carers, one, one at each end and all these uneven stone steps down to the boat. And when you're climbing in, you know, if they lose balance and he goes into the water or, got, or just falls, he could, he, his, his bones are very brittle. Things could happen. And, but he just loved doing that. And, in fact, when I was climbing in, I almost stumbled. And I thought, oh, my God, he's going to be scared. And I look at him. He's just laughing at me. <laughs> so, you know, but that, that was his physics, too. So he was an event. That's why, you know, what did he study? He studied the most exotic things in the, in, in the universe, right? Black holes and, and the Big Bang, the early universe. He wasn't you know, looking at, oh, I wonder what percentage of carbon we need in this, you know, it gets produced in the star during this reaction, or, you know, he's studying bizarre, um, you know, situations that blow your mind when you, you know, when you read about them and going backward in time and disappearing forever and getting torn apart by tidal gravity forces and whatnot. I mean, you know, he, he had that same spirit where he was going to, he was just going where the fun was, you know. I think that's such an important, I, I think, again, mentioning because you, you were friends with and wrote about Richard Feynman, that to me is part of that. It's not merely that these pe people are geniuses, but the joy when you see those moments, whether it's in the Vomit Comet, when you watch Richard Feynman when he was very ill, one of the last times he was filmed, the quest for Tanatuva, uh, you know, playing the bongos. And there's something out, you know, but science, I think, is still has this battle where people in popular culture see scientists going, hello, I've come here to count things. And of course, as you know, and I know, it's filled with people who are mavericks and rebels and eccentrics and so excited by not merely the, the immediate ideas of the science of the world, but everything within the world. And it seems to me that both those figures, Feynman and, and Stephen Hawking, capture that you know, the zeal for knowledge for the purpose of delight as well as advancement. That, that, that's right. In my, you know, my, my earlier book on Feynman, Feynman's Rainbow, the subtitle is uh, Search for Beauty in Physics and in Life. And he had a lot in common with Stephen. And, and, you know, I knew Feynman in my 20s and I knew Stephen when I was uh, middle-aged. And, and they kind of formed, you know, two ends of my career. But, but they're, I, you know, those two books are, are in a way a pair because it, uh, they had – so much in common and the way they influenced me as well. And, you know, Feynman was a maverick and he, he used to do physics in bars. Uh, he used to play the bongo drums. Uh, he, he, 
he loved drawing and, 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 and uh, you know, he, he talked to me once about maybe writing a novel. I mean, he was a guy who did all sorts of things, whatever he thought was fun. And he taught me to always follow my passions, whatever direction they take me. And that's what Stephen, that's what Stephen did. And interestingly, Stephen uh, knew Feynman. He, Feynman really, uh, in a way, taught Stephen quantum theory. Stephen was a uh, kind of a goof-off uh, undergrad at Oxford <laughs> and, and then a graduate student at Cambridge. And um, he didn't know a lot of quantum um, theory when he went into the 1970s when he started visiting Caltech. And uh, he gave a talk there, and Feynman came to his talk, and they got to be friends. And Feynman was famous, most famous, for his own formulation of quantum theory that he did in the late 1940s. Uh, it was a, a different, we called it with Feynman diagrams, but it was a new way of looking at quantum theory that the people who had invented quantum theory hadn't, uh, hadn't done. They had done it differently. But Feynman's method was very useful for certain things. And Stephen didn't really know it that well. Yeah, but he started talking to Feynman about it and started reading about it. And those are the techniques in quantum theory that, that uh, Stephen used later in his career, uh, the ones that he started learning at Caltech. So he and Feynman, uh, not only did they have certain similarities, but they had that, that intersection as well. And by the way, Stephen, uh, you know, Feynman was an idol of uh, most of us in those days and Stephen as well. So Stephen was very happy when he, when he met Feynman and had a chance to, to talk with him. Those Feynman diagrams, and there's that beautiful image of him and his family and the camper van that they had with a Feynman diagram just on the side. And now people have tattoos of Feynman. You know, I could never dare to have one because that's a tattoo that you have to understand. It's bad enough having a Chinese symbol that's been mistranslated. If you don't understand the physics on your arm, then it's best not to have it inked, I reckon. Yeah, people could misunderstand, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Depends where you put it, though, Robin, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, I want to just, on a very basic thing, which is, to ask how the relationship began, because you, you, you have, as well as writing many excellent books, you, you, you've also taught science writing at, at Caltech, and it's a skill. And so was that part of the reason that, that you and Stephen Hawking started working together, or, or was there something else? Uh, Stephen contacted me. He had read my first two books. Uh, one of them was Feynman's Rainbow that I mentioned. The other was Euclid's Window about curved space-time. And at the time, he was looking, you know, because it was so hard for him to communicate, which means also to, to type, to write a book, he was looking for someone to work with. And I guess he had been looking for a while, and he was very, a very picky guy, and he wanted someone who's, who, with a sense of humor, whose writing he liked, but also who understood the physics. And uh, those are two uh, somewhat separate uh, sets, and he's looking for the intersection of those sets, and he liked those books, and so one day I get a call from my agent, oh, guess what? Someone from Stephen Hawking's office called and wants to know if you uh, want to write a book with him. <laughs> uh, why don't you think about it and, and call me back? And I said, sure, I'll think about it. Okay, I've thought about it, <laughs> you know, and, and it was, I'm obviously I jumped on that. It was a very great honor and uh, very exciting, and so what, what that was about was he, he his famous book, most famous book, A Brief History of Time, had sold more than 10 million copies. Uh, but Stephen knew that uh, most people didn't understand it or even get to the end of it. And, and he wanted to redo it in a way that was more understandable, that was clearer. And so he was looking for someone for that. And so we did that. And it was fairly easy because we started from a book and it was a matter of editing and adding and subtracting uh, and it went very smoothly, and it only took a little over a year. I came out, I think, in 2005. Uh, but then I was at, on the faculty of Caltech at the time, and uh, he would come 
he had been coming for decades for four to six weeks uh, at a time. And so the next time he came, I went to his office and I said, you know, hey, Stephen, you know, this, this is great. I'm glad we did the Briefer History. It was a lot of fun. But I've been reading your latest work and, and all the things that you've written in the past, like Universe in a Nutshell, Brief History, Illustrated Brief History, all these different books are based on your work in the 70s and 80s. And I think we should write something about your work now. And I'm thinking he's going to think about it too. But, but it took him just as little time as it took me when, to what I want to think. He immediately said, yes, let's do that. And so that became uh, the grand design. That is, uh, I, I, I love that when you talk about brief history of time, I love that story. I think it was in Caltech where someone comes up to him in a cafe, uh, an undergrad, and says, I just want to say brief history of time is my, my favorite book. And he replied, did you read it to the end? You know, that's, uh, and that's an interesting thing because with brief history of time, you, you definitely did. I think it, it was uh, easier to go into it for, uh, I, I think brief history of time is, is a remarkable book. But for someone like me who's not scientific, it is, it is much harder than people might imagine. But I, I also feel it's somewhat unfair, that idea where people say it's too difficult. I think it feels to me, and I don't know how you feel about this, part of the reason with Brief History of Time was most people or a lot of people who bought that hadn't read any science since they left school. And to go into a book like that and just go, this is the first, your, your starting point, it, it is going to be tricky, isn't it? It's not necessarily a failure of, of the book. It's perhaps sometimes a failure of understanding or maybe marketing occasionally to say you might have to do a little bit of revision beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, 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 the concepts that he put into that book were amazingly complex and you have to put it in its time frame too. Uh, nowadays, we're used to, there's a lot of popular science books, a lot of physics books, and a lot of them treat very arcane or highly technical topics. And, but back then, uh, there weren't. Uh, the science book industry hadn't really exploded yet and there weren't many and people were not used to like getting a book like that that may be a little bit difficult to read through where you have to struggle to understand some of the concepts and and so uh definitely it was a, it was an amazing book you know in its time uh, and it was challenging for readers and over time i think readers are willing to take more challenges but but still it goes far and there are aspects of there were aspects of the book where there are aspects of the book that that aren't necessarily needed to get the main point across about, about what Stephen was trying to say. So one of the things we did in a briefer history was to, to look at what was really necessary and not go into some of the technical details that I think he, as the author writing about his own work, was in love with, but that, that, but that the popular science reader didn't necessarily have to master in order to understand his point. Now, I'm going to take the risk and start talking about black holes now which uh, are, you know, this is, I, I just, I really, uh, I, I, was, I was saying before we started doing this, we did, a, did an infinite monkey cage about black holes recently, and there was a beautiful moment 25 minutes in where I could just hear the audience's heads beginning to crack open. There's that point of, wow, that's incredible. That's, that's nothing out there. And you get this certain thing, and then you suddenly go, now it's really got hard. Now it is, you know, it, it has so many ramifications for our understanding about the universe. So, can you give me some idea of how Stephen Hawking changed our understanding of black holes and whether, in fact, you want to just, first of all, define what a, a black hole is? Sure. Well, we don't need any, any fancy physics, really, to understand a black hole. Uh, in fact, uh, in the 1800s, somebody speculated about the existence of black holes just based on Newton's theories. And the idea is that gravity due to the force of gravity, all objects 
uh, attract other objects, all other objects. So if you're on the earth, for instance, the earth attracts everything on the earth. And if you shoot up a rocket from the earth, it's getting pulled down, right? And if you, if you take a stone and you throw it up into the sky, for example, uh, the earth will pull it back. But if you throw it hard enough with enough uh, energy, a great enough velocity, it will just keep going and it will escape the earth, okay? That's called the escape velocity based on the, on the size of the earth and how far you are from its center. You have a certain escape velocity. If you, go, if you throw it upward with more than a certain speed, it will keep going forever. And if you don't, it will turn around and come back down. What goes up must come back down, they say, but only if it's not going faster than a certain speed. So a black hole is simply, in that, in that description, is simply something that um, is so massive that the escape velocity that you need to get out of its grasp is greater than the speed of light. We know that the speed of light is the speed limit. Nothing can go faster than the speed of light. So if you're so massive that, that the velocity you need to start with to escape the, the Earth's pull or, or, the, or the object's pull is greater than the speed of light, you'll all, everything, you'll automatically come back down again. So that would be a simple description uh, of a black hole. Now, in, um, in Einstein's theory, that gets a lot more complicated, but uh, the point is that it's the same idea. The black hole is so, so much mass is concentrated that nothing can get out of it. Nothing can escape. And so everything that falls into it just never comes back out. And, and it has certain properties that are interesting, which is that things that fall in lose their identity. Uh, a black hole, no matter what falls in, the only thing that changes in a black hole is, is the mass, so it gets it gets more mass if mass falls in, and it can change its spin and its electric charge. It's better not to just, just technical stuff we don't need to talk about. But basically, if you fall into a black hole and some of those framed f uh, pictures behind you fall into a black hole, the only difference uh, in the end is uh, how much mass the thing gained. Uh, the, your, your identity does not is totally erased, and it doesn't matter what, what goes in, into the black hole. So those are, that's kind of what a black hole is. And um, now in the, people knew about them, since, I say since the 1700s, but uh, since Einstein's theory came out, people did the theory of black holes according to Einstein's theory, and people were not generally interested in that. See, one of the biggest contributions that Stephen made, other than just his physics, was to take a field of uh, black holes and also the early universe that in the 60s very few people were interested in, and to, and to show that it's fascinating, not only fascinating, but very informative for the theories of physics, and turn it into a hot field. When he started uh, studying those black holes on the early universe, there was a conference in Warsaw, and Richard Feynman, who we've been talking about, went to that conference, you know, went to the lectures, wrote back to his wife at home, and these are like a bunch of dopes here. <laughs> this field does not attract the best people. And he said, because there's no experiments or observations to connect to the early universe and, and, and to things like that. So it doesn't attract good people. And it was a really considered a dead field because in the early 1960s, physicists couldn't look back in time far enough to, to really learn much about the early universe. And they believed they would never see a black hole, that they were just theoretical niceties. So part of Stephen's greatness and intuition was to somehow realize that that's not true, that if we study both the early universe and black holes, we can learn a lot, not just about those objects in that situation, but about the theories of physics, and they can teach us a lot. And so what he did in the 1960s was he applied general relativity to prove some things about both black holes and about the early universe that were really very interesting for physicists. 
And then in the 70s, he, he in a way took it all back. I mean, he was so amazing in, in his openness of mind that he just flipped himself and he realized that quantum mechanics was important. He had been ignoring the quantum effects. And he decided, well, let me look, see how, how incorporating quantum theory into my theories changes things. And he realized that all the stuff he had did earlier was wrong. And he got even more famous by, by showing how things change when you include quantum theory in this. And that was a very important step because quantum theory and general relativity are, are different theories. They're separate and they clash. So they, they contradict each other. And you may wonder how could physicists have, doesn't this bother people? How could you have theories that contradict each other? And how could they both be right? But gravity in general um, is, is um, important for large scale things in the universe like stars and galaxies. And, and quantum theory is important for small microscopic things like uh, electrons and atoms. And so uh, the people who study atoms were happy with that and ignoring general relativity. The people who study general relativity and the stars were happy with that ignoring quantum theory. And then Stephen, and, and there were some other people with him, but Stephen was, was the leader, I would say, you know, came along and said, well, in these situations, in the early universe and around black holes, we really need them both. And they conflict. And I don't know how to make a theory, you know, that solves that. I don't know how to reconcile them. We're still, and we're still looking for a theory that would reconcile them or that would be both the quantum realm and the general relativity realm in one theory. But he said, well, I don't have that, and I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and I'm going to use them together in a very careful way and come up with some theories. And uh, that he got attacked, you know, very roundly for, because when you're doing something like that, you're not only using contradictory theories, but you're making a lot of approximations, you're making assumptions, you're, we call it hand-waving, we're saying, you know, look over there, and then I'm going to do this here. I mean, mathematicians, we would drive them crazy. That's why mathematicians <laughs> are just not, you know, that's why there's jokes about the mathematician and the physicist. So when he announced it, this major thing that we now call Hawking radiation, you know, he had tremendous guts, okay, because he, he, he had this thing that there was another fellow named Beckenstein who did, wasn't doing that, but he, he said something of just a little bit in that direction, and, and he got, like, like, like beat up, right? And, and, in fact, Stephen was one of the ones beating him up because no one believed that that would work. And then Stephen went out to prove that Beckenstein's ideas were ridiculous, and that's when he discovered, no, Beckenstein was right, and he flipped his own ideas, and he made it much bigger. And now he's going, so he's going to a conference, uh, and he's, you know, um, he could still move, but he's in a wheelchair, and he's very weak, and um, he's going to a conference where he knows that, that, that the audience is going to be very antagonistic, and he's going to announce his result to them. He could have just sent it to, the, to, the, to nature, and let it be published and, and then let it sink in and then fight his battles by letters. But he's going to go and say it to people aloud. And, and um, actually, yeah, this was, I think this was before he was in a wheelchair, but, but he was very, very frail. And he wasn't, he wasn't afraid of that. And he, he went into the lion's den. And sure enough, when he was done, the, uh, the, the, the guy who was running the thing didn't allow any questions, didn't thank him. And then later, you know, basically said, this is all BS. And, and he was the referee when Stephen did send it to Nature, and he rejected the paper, but it eventually was accepted and did get published. So, you know, he fought the battle, but he fought it in a courageous way, and now that's the thing he's most, he's most famous for, is Hawking radiation.
Well, you say there's a lot in, in the book as well, which I'd, I would highly recommend reading in terms of, the, of uh, understanding black holes. But just what you were saying there reminded me of one of your quotes is contradiction was not just a philosophy of life. It was a way of life for Stephen Hawking. And that seems to be, you know, that story you're just telling there, many of the other stories in the book are that, and, and you kind of attach that as well to his physical being, that all of those contradictions that he w- were embodied in him as well. Right. I mean, exactly. He, he, so he could contradict his own theories and be happy with that. He also contradicted other th- people's theories. But he could accept that general relativity says this and quantum theory says that. And, and he would find, you know, they, they contradict each other, but he would, he would find a way to reconcile them, just like uh, he could find a way to, to do adventurous things despite his, his disability. And um, that led to, in, in, in the grand design, uh, when I said, I want to write about your latest theories of physics, he, he added something to that. He, he, he wanted to write also about his philosophy, the new philosophy of physics, which he called model-dependent realism. And the key to that is that he, he believed that one should be able to have different models, conflicting models of reality, and jump from one to the other, uh, depending on, on, on whichever uh, you needed or whichever worked best at the time. And uh, so he wanted to add that to the book and as we talk about that in the book as well now that book of course one of the the first time it really hit the newspapers very early on was and you and you you talk about this the, the debate over you kind of riled philosophers didn't you and and i wonder your your take on the idea that philosophy is kind of reasonably moribund science now does the work of philosophy how do you feel about about that well, I, I, I don't agree with Stephen. So um, we had, a, well, I, I think I did agree with Stephen, but, but he wanted to say, so say it in a different way. So he's writing, he wants us to be the book about a new philosophy of physics. And yet he also wants to say philosophy is dead. <laughs> and so we had quite a discussion about that because, um, you know, I, I wanted to be a little bit more nuanced. And, and, you know, obviously there are other branches of philosophy as, as a way of studying the, the, uh, studying the physical world uh, for many centuries, philosophy was the way we attacked it, which is more or less pure, pure reason. But now we have the scientific method and so we've developed science, physics, chemistry, and so forth. And we can, we have other ways of understanding the world. So understanding the, the uh, functioning of the physical universe through philosophy is, is, is dead, but there's ethics, there's the morality, there is the, um, political philosophy, the philosophy of, well, the philosophy of science, of physics has one philosophy. Math has another philosophy. I talked about the clash earlier. So there's a lot of areas of philosophy that are still very uh, vibrant. Uh, so I wanted to say, you know, as a, way, as a way of understanding the universe, philosophy is dead. But Stephen uh, wanted to just say philosophy is dead because it has more punch. And, uh, and I, you know, I told him that, well, we're going to, you know, after we, he won the argument and, and, <laughs> Um, we're going to get dinged by, by philosophers. And sure enough, we did upset philosophers, but um, not as much as we upset uh, some theologians, uh, Robin. So uh, I think that was the London Times that you mentioned. Uh, yeah. It had to do with, with the God question. And, and they, they, they got it. They don't think they read the book because the headline was uh, Hawking, colon, uh, God did not create the universe. That's, a little off from what we said. What we said was God is not necessary to create the universe. So we, in that book, talked about uh, Stephen's theories of physics in which the universe could arise from nothing, which means you don't need a creator. But we didn't say there wasn't one. 
And we didn't talk about the issue of who created the laws from which we're saying this. So that was a bit of a, uh, of a stretch, but you know, they say all publicity is good publicity. <laughs> well, it was a very, I mean, it, well, you, that, that bit about, you know, th- those angry theologians might not have actually seen it in the same way. Life of Brian, when there were the famous footage of the, a theologian and Malcolm Muggeridge arguing, they'd missed the beginning of the film because they'd been in the pub. So they hadn't realized Jesus is part of that film. It's made very, very clear. So yeah, some angry theologians just don't like doing the reading. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, the philosophy thing, I, I find it very interesting because I do think it is an area where I wonder how you feel about the fact that, that we need to find new ways where philosophy and science do work together. Because I think, as you said, if we are using philosophy as a, as a way to live your life, then understanding why we have this life, why we have awareness, the beginning of the universe from the, the understanding that we have so far, as far back as we can go, they seem to be very important elements. And I think on, on both sides, sometimes we're not communicating properly. That, that antagonism going, do you know what? You, uh, it's the old, was it Einstein, the, the science uh, without, without, um, religion without science is, is blind, science without religion is lame. I think that I may well have misquoted, but it's, it's approximate of that. And to some extent, I think if you replace religion with philosophy, there does seem to be a, a point there in terms of that communication that's required. Yeah, and, and you know, Stephen was actually quite interested in philosophy. I had a talk with Kip about this once. So it, he liked, uh, you know, he, he liked to create a stir and to uh, say things in a, in a you know, provocative way. But, uh, you know, I think, I think his, his very narrow point, which is that we're, gonna, we're not going to make a vaccine for the coronavirus through philosophy. We're going to make it through science. That we can hardly argue with. Mm. And I don't think he felt that other than that, that philosophy was useless. Because, as I said, he wanted to talk this book, wanted to be about philosophy. And we put a, even put a, a name to it, his philosophy, model-dependent realism. In philosophy, there's realism and there's anti-realism. And he's in the middle somewhere. And he, it's, we called it uh, model-dependent realism. So um, for a guy who doesn't want to, you know, who, who wants to write a book on philosophy, to start by saying philosophy is dead is a, an interesting approach. But that's Stephen, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's the I mean, again, I, I, sorry to keep going back to Feynman, but I think that's a similar thing. There's some very funny stories about him and his antagonism towards philosophy. But in terms of a philosophical scientist, you know, the, the number of aphorisms that are in his work and useful aphorisms for understanding the universe and ourselves are plentiful. Well, and fine, there's great stories about Feynman too, but, it, you know, he once said about philosophy, he said, uh, philosophy is as useful to physicists as ornithology is to birds. Actually, I should say, I think, and I knew him, you know, I knew him fairly well too. I think uh, Feynman was, was um, um, actually literally pretty anti-philosophy. I don't think Stephen, Stephen was the same way that Feynman was. Yeah, it's an interesting. Uh, maybe it's just there's not enough philosophy out there in the public sphere. Maybe that's the thing is we sometimes we see the the, the worst of it and the most kind of tabloidies version of it, if that's the, the right way of, well, of saying it. I think they should make all, all world leaders study it, maybe, <laughs> those yeah. that read. Yeah, that and send them up to the ISS as well. I think that may well change uh, some of their perspectives. Yeah. Maybe um, to a black hole, and then they can come back 200 years later and won't bother us. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, the, this, we've only got five minutes left, and then I, I'm going to take audience questions. So, but there, there was one thing I would – there are stories of, of scientists, and you kind of mentioned Einstein, the idea that to some people Einstein became somewhere between kind of a, 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 a heretic and then also something that was considered archaic by, by younger physicists. And Fred Hoyle 
who you mentioned because that was the person that that Stephen Hawking would most wanted to be his tutor. Isn't isn't that right? The uh, and yeah. yet the sorry, not go ahead. No, I was just yeah. going to say, and then there's that fascinating thing that, of course, Stephen Hawking's work it goes totally against what um, Fred Hoyle. What, well, this is the interesting thing I wanted to talk about, which is it seems that Stephen Hawking didn't fall into the trap of being someone who had a point of incredible relevance and then remained trapped in, in, in a, you know, and then not progressing. Whereas with Fred Hoyle, someone like he was a, a great physicist, but there was one idea which from what I've spoken to some people, it, it seems to be that it, it was particularly because he didn't want to believe it. It wasn't necessarily about the science. There was something underlining it all where he, where he, he was desperate not to believe it. That doesn't there, seem there, to be an issue with Stephen Hawking. There is so much in what you just said. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was, you know that bit where you go, well, I've only got one question left, so you ask seven, and you don't actually give all of the bits of the question, and then the audience have to try and work out what the hell I was meant to be saying. But, but yeah, let's start with that bit of that constant, that ability to, to age and not become trapped so, by... The, the, and this is a... We don't have time for that, but you can go through the... You know, Max Planck is misquoted, but, well, let's say, Max Planck is quoted as saying, uh, science advances funeral by funeral, meaning that the deadwood, you know, those people who are stuck in, in their ideas have to die. And he didn't really say that. He said in a much less eloquent way, and it's been pared down to that. So I, I like that quote. Plus, he said it in German. So <laughs> you can make it anything you want if you translate it the right way. But but there's a lot of truth to that. And Hoyle was an example. And it's, there's so much irony here because Stephen Coyle was a famous cosmologist. He had made amazing, uh, he had done some great, great, great work. So I'm not to, meaning to belittle him in any way. But one thing he did that, that didn't work was he believed in something called the steady state theory, which means that the universe on a large scale is not really changing. So the Big Bang wasn't there. The universe has always been there in, in the steady state theory. And anyway, that was a theory that he was big in uh, at the time when Stephen was going to, to graduate school. And Stephen wanted to be his student and didn't get taken by him because he had too many students already. Then in Stephen's PhD thesis, so he, gets, he works for another guy, Shima, Dennis Shima, who turned out to be a great advisor for him. And, um, and part of his PhD thesis is, is trashing Hoyle's theories. And in fact, in the seminar, he was famous for contradicting Hoyle and actually pointing out that he had done something wrong in his calculations. So, and it was a good thing that that wasn't his advisor because that could be bad, you know. <laughs> but, but, but Hoyle just couldn't let go of the steady state theory no matter how much was piling up. So just as uh, Planck said, you know, he had to kind of die off and the new people had to come on to look at it differently. But Stephen was not like that at all. Stephen would not only accept when his theories get debunked, but he'd be the one to do the debunking. So, hey, you know, it's like, you know, bam, bam, okay, all right. <laughs> So um, that was an, and that was an amazing. I mean, that that allowed him to make more advances because not only does he make the initial advance, he makes the advance of showing that the initial advance was wrong. <laughs> and I shouldn't exactly say wrong, but he he's adding. To, he didn't say that his work was wrong, but he's saying that now I ignore quantum theory, and and now I've realized, oh, we can't ignore quantum theory, and here's how that changes things. So that's what he said. But he he was he was very good about following. You know, when the math said something, he. He didn't argue with it, right? Whereas other people do. They, they, I mean, there's an amazing quote by Sir James Jean, okay? Turn of the 20th century. He's studying something called black body radiation. That's like the inspector. It's about the frequencies of light that a hot object gives off. You know, when a charcoal is glowing, it's red, it's, it can be red and then it turns yellow and so on. And it gives, actually gives off 
radiation, all different frequencies, infrared and ultraviolet. And so people used to graph, this was around the time the light bulb was invented. And that's why they were interested in what light, something that's glowing gives off. And they would graph it and somebody wanted to explain it theoretically. And genes use Newton's laws and laws of electricity and magnetism to create a, a prediction for what, how this radiation should look. Totally wrong. It was, it was bizarrely wrong. I mean, it showed infinite radiation in certain, in certain frequencies, and it was obviously not right. It didn't match the experiments at all. This other guy comes along, makes a kind of a weird assumption, and, and, and calculates what it leads to, and, and he matches the curve perfectly. One of his friends, uh, we didn't have, of course, computers back then, so to, to do all the math to see how it, how it, you know, how, how the, what the, even what the predictions are, it took all night, but he was so excited. He had one of his friends work all night to, to see the predictions, and they matched the experimental curve exactly. So they go to James Jean, it was, so he publishes this, and James Jean, you know, reads this thing, and, and, and he goes, uh, he has a quote like, uh, I understand that, I won't say his name yet, but I understand that this other guy's uh, theory matches the experimental data exactly, and mine is completely off, and yet I still believe that mine is the right one. <laughs> <laughs> that's how bizarre it got and this quote other guy was named Max Planck and his new uh, machinations are just now called quantum theory but but genes you know didn't go for it 10 years later in the, like 1913 um, Max Planck is writing a recommendation for Einstein to get some kind of award for for relativity and in his in his recommendation for Einstein to get the award he says because I should say that Einstein made the next big contribution after Planck. And Einstein is the one who taught everyone that quantum theory is important. When Planck did it, they thought it was just a trick for explaining this black body radiation. Einstein said, no, it's a law of nature, and I'm going to apply it somewhere else. And he applied it to photoelectric effect and showed that he could explain that mystery that people didn't understand using Planck's idea. And now people started working on it because they saw, you know, that there's something to it. Well, Planck didn't, didn't believe that. He didn't, he didn't like that. Ten years later, he's writing a recommendation for Einstein. He said, Einstein's a great guy. His work in relativity is amazing. And we have to excuse him if sometimes he has a crazy wrong idea like this quantum theory. <laughs> <laughs> so even the guy who invented it is against it. So we have to give Stephen credit that he didn't fall for all that. He, he was going in new directions all the time. And, you know, and even after his work in the 70s and then in the 80s, he, he did a new look at the creation of the universe in the 2000s. Uh, with his top-down cosmology that we wrote about in the grand design. And he was always going to new, you know, like I say on Star Trek, exploring strange new worlds. So, and then, so it's fitting that he was in an episode, and that's fitting that I wrote for Star Trek. <laughs> so where I see we're all it's a small world <laughs> uh, yeah it's, it's that whole thing isn't it that whole six degrees of separation the hardest thing with that is to make it as many as six degrees more right. often you go I got there in four I got there in three it's yeah it's, it's a fantastic web that one we have some audience questions so I'm gonna uh, this is from Joanne Joanne would like to know did Stephen have any spiritual beliefs Stephen uh, believed in science so um he, he did not have religious beliefs. He, he believed that if there was not evidence for something, that it's not something that you should believe in. He wasn't anti-religion, some people would portray. Um, he, he, he was an atheist, but he didn't, you know, his, his first wife, Jane, and Elaine were both devout uh, Christians. He would go with Elaine to um, church. So he had nothing against it. Now, whether he was spiritual, I would say he was very spiritual because I don't think that spiritual has to be related to uh, religion. And, um, 
and he had he had faith and he had faith in certain things too uh he, he wasn't a man who didn't have faith i mean he had faith for you know he had faith in that the laws of nature for example are consistent and that they're not there's no exceptions somewhere um, but he had faith in, in there's little things in life that we do that shows our faith too for example uh, he took about 85 vitamins a day and he took vitamins because his father who was a physician when he got sick his father recommended he take these vitamins and thought that no one knew much about this disease, and we're still learning about it. We don't know that much about it. But he thought that some of these antioxidants and vitamins would, would help him, and, and Stephen took them his whole life. And he was, um, they were very important to him. He, 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 he believed in them very strongly, even though there was no, no scientific evidence. There were no studies on vitamins and ALS. So he just took it on faith. So it wasn't that he was a person who never had faith. You, you have that lovely quote, which is believing that souls are not supernatural, but rather the products of our brains did not diminish his spirituality. And I think, I think that's one of the problems when we, before we talked a little bit about language, philosophy and science, sometimes those bits that just don't seem to meet. And it's very often seems to be a language barrier almost. And I feel with spirituality, that's one of those words, which is somehow meant to immediately then lead to, you know, pixies or, you know, gods of the forest, but the spirituality of the wonder in this universe existing, a living planet, the variety of life that is on it, being able to look at the moon and wonder at the moon, it's a, there's a, there can be a spirituality in that, I think. It's not always looking at it and measuring it. I mean, Stephen believed in the human spirit. Uh, he believed very much. He was very um, interested in other people and connecting with other people. And he had a very strong spirit himself. I mean, he, 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 it was what got him through you know, his, his, his times of, of hardship. Uh, so yeah, spirituality doesn't have to be uh, uh, floating angels. Uh, spirituality can be the spirit within you and within other people. Yeah, I think that's that's very true. The, this is a tough one from M, uh, which is because it's one of those ones where you go, oh man, it slipped my mind. Did Stephen Hawking have any favorite jokes he liked to tell? Uh, he, he, uh, he had one. Uh, he, he definitely ha had one. I mean, in general, I didn't hear him repeating his jokes a lot, but there was one that kind of a tease that he would, one of his carers was from uh, uh, Eastern Europe. And, and Stephen loved, first of all, Stephen loved to eat. So I talked a lot about the, the food adventures. And one thing that he loved was mushrooms. And this carer hated mushrooms. And every time it was like a broken record. So they'd be mushrooms on his whatever, in his gravy or something. And she'd go, oh, Stephen, how can you eat those mushrooms? And then he'd always say, you don't like mushrooms because you were born behind the Iron Curtain and you didn't have any. He, that's what he told her every time. And, you know, it was a tease. But uh, I guess they didn't. I think it's true. And uh, this is one of those, you know, plug and play. <laughs> it's just like, okay, I see the mushrooms coming out and I know what's going to happen now. And, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of reminding me of like an old uncle who does that. It's not who, who usually makes those same, those same teases every time. I don't know. <laughs> this is uh yeah he does the, the, again that impish quality that we talked about before i just seen to see uh wayne would like to know uh stephen spent his life trying to answer complex questions which one question would he have been most relieved to have known the answer to well that's an interesting question i i i, I felt that that okay i mean i could there's two ways of answering it but but okay one 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 way let me get this one out of the, the quick one out of the way. The, 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 the challenge of physics today, probably the greatest challenge uh, 
is to find a way to combine a quantum theory and general relativity. As I mentioned earlier in our, in our talk, that these are two separate realms, one for the force of gravity, one for the other forces of nature, one in the large scale, one in the atomic or subatomic, and we, we want to know how to reconcile them in a single theory. String theory has that promise, but so far after 40 years, it still hasn't gotten there. Um, and I think that uh, Stephen made some progress in that with his, with his work and, as I say, applying them together, but he still didn't create a single unified theory. And I think he would, physics-wise, that was what, what you would say he would want to see. However, uh, you know, when Stephen got sick, and he was at that time, as I said, kind of aimless, and decided that he wanted to do something with his life, and he, he found meaning and he found purpose, and I think that's what got him through the next decades. And that meaning and purpose was in understanding where the universe came from and uh, how we got here and why the laws of nature are what they are. And I think that with his work in the 2000s that we wrote about in the Grand Design, I think he really felt he found he had found that. So that in a way, that the answers to those philosophical questions um, I think he felt that he understood now where the universe came from and why the we have the laws of physics uh, that they are now. So I think he was pretty content uh, with, with that. And it's interesting because, uh, you know, some one of his friends was telling me that he felt that in the end, it wasn't so much that Stephen uh, got sick and died, but that he decided he had, he had been here long enough. And maybe that was part of it, that he, uh, that he felt he had accomplished his mission. Thank you. This is uh, this one uh, from Alex. Alex would like to know how accurate do you think the cultural depictions of Stephen Hawking are? Uh, in particular, I'm thinking of 2014 film Theory of Everything and that episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> well, in the, uh, he's not a cartoon, so The Simpsons isn't totally accurate. Um, I, I think in um, well, let me tell you what Stephen said about the movie. So I, I was at the premiere. Uh, in Hollywood and uh, the producer was addressing the crowd and said, uh, he was very proud that Stephen said uh, that the movie is broadly true. <laughs> and I think that would be his opinion that, that the, um, I'm not sure it's a compliment necessarily, but that the, you know, the headlines uh, are, are in the time timing, I guess is, is accurate, but the, the scenes were, were fictional. I mean, the, the actual playing out of what actually happened uh, you know, what was not. So it's broadly true, but the details are not necessarily uh, accurate. And I know that I know there was at least one, which I, it's a little vague to me, but he's staring into the fireplace and something pops, he gets an idea. You know, that was something like that kind of did happen, but it didn't have the significance that they have in the movie. And it also was not in the, in the same context. It was about something else. But so they, you know, they, they have to make a movie that is dramatic and moves forward in a certain way and follows the, you know, the Hollywood, it wasn't a documentary, follows the Hollywood storytelling paradigm. And so I think they squeeze things into, to be like that. But in general, I wrote Stephen, I wrote my book because I felt that he in the media is not portrayed accurately. And when you watch the movie or when you watch him on his interviews, you're not getting uh, an accurate feeling of what his everyday life was. And so I want you to be a fly on the wall, uh, to be there and, and to be with him for for a time and to understand what his life was really like and because I was so inspired by it and learned so much for my own life from him uh, that, that I wanted to write that book and hope that that imparts that to other people. 
I love it when you talk about looking in the fire. That's one of the hardest things for movies to do, the scientific revelation moment. I remember right. watching a movie about Charles Darwin, not the recent one. There was one where he's sitting in a gentleman's club with some sprouts, cabbage and cauliflower. And he goes, isn't it funny? They're all related to each other, but hang on a minute. That gives me an idea. And I just, you know. Um, uh, it was like a pacho. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> soup here. Yeah. Maybe that he would have been a physicist. It's the primordial soup. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're, we're, well, tell, let's, work, let's work on a book where we'll do all of the great dining scenes of Revelation uh, throughout the history of science. It will be uh, predominantly supposition, obviously. Um, this is from... Well, Rob, I have to make a quick footnote to that. I think it's very destructive to give people the impression that a scientist can sit there, see something like that, and bam, a theory pops into your head and it's done. Because you know what? It's a heck of a lot more work than that. And, it, you know, it, it's just not the way it's done. I, I just wanted to get that out. Thank you. Oh, well, I think that's an interesting, it's, it's like, you know, this year the, the Christmas lectures have got three different scientists. And one of the things that I think a lot of people are pleased about is it removes that lone maverick, that single, as opposed to the body of conversation, work and connection that so often, you know, leads. Well, it, gives a bad, it gives a bad impression because people think, you know, that it belittles science, really. They think, oh, I can sit there and look at the stars. I get an idea and people come to me with their idea. I'm going, you know what, that might be your initial idea. Now do the uh, hundreds of hours of work to translate it to mathematics, which often doesn't work, to see if it actually works out, which usually doesn't work, and to make it relevant to how people, you know, to the, our theories and, and all that. I mean, it, it's just like I have an idea. You might tell someone, I have an idea for a novel or a movie. Okay, good. Now go write it and let's see if it's good, you know, because the idea is not the movie and the idea is not the book and it's not the theory. Thank you. <laughs> that's like yeah all those people who are still working on that cold fusion machine in their barn exactly right yeah they're still doing that right yeah um carmen would like to know um who did Stephen admire most and what was it that uh, he particularly admired in them i think Stephen admired einstein uh einstein the most um and, and you know unfortunately i wish i had i wish it was a uh i wish i could say it was someone you'd never heard of like george gamoff or somebody but uh you know he um he admired Einstein for, for obvious reasons uh, for what he did. And, um, but I mean, he also admired Feynman quite a bit. Um, and I know that he did not like Newton. <laughs> uh, he thought he was an ass. <laughs> Apparently he yeah. was. Too. <laughs> yeah, he, he doesn't come across that well in the biographies. Um, uh, Wayne would like to know, what do you think it was about Stephen Hawking that made him such an attractive figure? He says, you know, Jane, Elaine, etc. But generally, what was it that made him, people were so drawn well, to I him? I mean, his, his mind, uh, his personality, his, you know, his, uh, well, he was very obviously brilliant, but, but, but he had this indomitable spirit where, where he could overcome anything and he could do it with a sense of humor and a, and a uh, positive outlook. And uh, I think that that's very, you know, that's a great thing to find in a, uh, you know, in a partner or in a relationship or in a friend, right? Uh, actually, the psychology, psychology research shows that um, we're very much affected by the um, psychological state of our, of our circle, of our friends, uh, their happiness level and so forth really rub off on us. So if you can get someone like that, I think it, it, it just make, it brightens up your life. Yeah, I think that's, uh, there's a lovely thing that, again, I, where did I put this? Uh, you comment on the fact that for many people, one of the things of reactions after they worked with him or met him or just listened to him was that they would start to think, uh, 
am I awake to my potential? Right, because I think one of the things he shows us, um, and I said in the book, is that um, you know probably the greatest limit on what you can accomplish is what you think you can't accomplish, or or the or the limit that you put on yourself, believing that you can accomplish it. And you know you could just look at pick anything from being able to eat to being able to go on a vomit comet or punting on the cam or finding out how black holes behave, uh, applying quantum theory with its contradictory theory, general relativity. I mean, all these things that you can look at and you can go, oh, that would never work. And you have to have faith. You see, if I can go back to that faith question, imagine someone sitting down and saying, uh, I'm going to, I have this, I have a theory of black holes based on this Einstein's theory, but now I'm going to plug in this contradictory theory, general relativity and see what that happens. I'm going to put in hundreds of hours. I can't even move. Everything is very difficult for me. I'm going to be totally in my head and level of amazing concentration, ignore my family, my, my wife, for weeks, months on end, trying to work this out. And you have no, no one guarantees that you're going to be able to do that. It could all just be a waste of time. But he had faith that, that, that there was something there and that he was capable of doing it. That's, just, that's amazing. That's inspiring, right? I mean, and then so when we have our little obstacles in life, you think about that and you go, wow, I, I, let me have faith too. That's great. Thank you so much. We've run out of time. I apologize that we, we had a load more questions that we, we haven't got time for. The book is out now. And I think, and I would highly recommend people get this and get Feynman's Rainbow because I think what's great about both of them is they are, especially maybe for some people out there who, who've, who've not read science for a while or whatever, quite often starting with the human being, getting a said like in the same way, you know, getting that sense of, of, of who they are is I think a great way of, of then starting to approach the ideas that came out of their heads as well. Thanks, Rob. And may I say, I guess I should say that since you guys are in England, that in England it's called Sometime with Feynman. So... <laughs> Oh, is it? I, do you know what? I must have bought it in America because mine's Feynman's Rainbow. Yeah, I know. So I, they changed it sometime with Feynman. Um, so anyway, thank you, though. I appreciate it. Yeah, I got mine in Mercer Street Books. It's a great bookshop in New York. Um, but yeah, so this is out now. Leonard, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I know there's loads more stuff that How To Academy are doing as well. Keep up to date with all those things. Again, apologies for the fact we couldn't deal with uh, all of your questions. But um, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you, Robert. Bye-bye. This week's podcast starred Len Mlodinov and was presented by Robin Ince. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to do all the things you are supposed to do with podcasts. Review us, subscribe to us, share us with your friends. And, of course, you can find out more about our upcoming livestream events at howtoacademy.com. Thanks for listening.